Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books, the podcast which takes us through four food moments chosen from the books of our favourite A-lister food writers. I'm Julie Smith and this week I'm with Bill Buford, the former fiction editor of The New Yorker and author of Dirt on uprooting his family and immersing them for five years in an epic adventure in French cooking. But before we meet Bill, a word from the hosts of another of my favourite food podcasts, The Cookbook Circle. A rare moment in podcasting rapport with fun facts and well-researched chef content. Victoria and Hannah tell us why we should listen and what they're listening to. Hello, I'm Hannah. And I'm Victoria. And in our podcast, The Cookbook Circle, we review the UK's most popular cookbooks. Each episode, we take one of the top books, read it, cook from it, and discuss all of our thoughts and feelings about the book, and have the occasional emotional breakdown over an artichoke. Cooking the Books listeners will love us for our general food, ingredient, and chef chat, things that you all love too, and a few jokes thrown in for good measure. The Cookbook Circle podcast wouldn't exist if we hadn't bonded over our mutual love of the powerhouse that is the off-menu podcast. So we have to shout out to Ed Gamble and James Acaster for their amazing work and constant inspiration. Now, back to Manhattan and the home of Bill Buford, where it sounds like he's printing his next book. Through his four food moments, he takes us back in time, through an Odyssean journey, wife and twin toddlers in tow, to the top Lyonnais restaurants where he learned to cook like a top French chef. He went in search of the roots of French food and he found the heart of French culture. But why, I asked, did he choose Lyon? I'd always assumed that I would be going to Paris. Uh, what I thought... French training, okay, I can do something maybe with a French chef in the United States as way of an inter- by way of an introduction, but I, I, I just assumed Paris. And it was when I got one of those introductions, when I was working with a chef, Michel Richard, in Washington, D.C., and was hanging, around, hanging out in the evening with some of the, some of the, some of the other cooks. Um, and they were saying, no, you don't want to go to Paris. Paris is cosmopolitan. It's... You know, it's all these different cuisines there. Everybody's got their cuisine there. It's not, it's not Parisian. What's Parisian? It's, it's just you know, generic French. You need to go someplace local. And, and they were talking about where they had both worked and met. These were two, two guys who cooked together. They're both French. And they'd, they'd cooked at a great restaurant in, in Burgundy, out in the countryside. And they had a relationship to the vines and the farmers and... And I was trying to place it, and they were saying, yeah, it's near, uh, you know, it's like an hour and a half from Lyon. No, it's an hour from Lyon. No, I think it's an hour. And then they both thought, Lyon? Lyon is where you need to go. Lyon is absolutely the place you've got to go. Lyon is the gastronomic capital of the world, as it's called. And they got so excited. They said, yeah, it's local, and the wines are local, the food is local, and they've got their own... That's where, that's where French cooking began. That's where you go. And... Uh, <laughs> Okay. But Leon, you describe as the gritty darkness. You say people are going to be put off by the the sewage smells, the broken cobblestones, the low cloud melancholy. You know, I have seen the view from your house, though, I have to say. uh, And it was pretty marvellous. It was a good view. However, Leon is not necessarily with its... And its and its food is is kind of hard to access, isn't it? It's all about entrails and calf's heads and and the famous andouillette. Do you want to take us through the andouillette? Bearing in mind people might be listening to this over breakfast. Oh, it's not really so bad, but it is very vivid and very immediate. It's it's tripe, it's tripe in a pig's intestine. You know, it's it's tripe in a sausage casing, but the sausage comes from a pig's intestine, as do the insides of the of the uh, of the underwood itself um it's the first thing i ate when i came to lyon 
Uh, it's not quite what I expected it to be, but I have a, I have a, I like tripe, um, but it has figured in my life really rather, it, it sort of, in a, in a, it's a very dominant theme. When I, when I went to Italy, worked in Italy, it was, I, I was making tripe there and did enough tripe that when I remember when, when my, I was lucky enough to have my book published in German and I went to Germany, there were all these very enthusiastic cooks who then wanted to give me tripe. But every place I went, they gave me tripe. And then the first thing I do when I come to Lyon is I eat tripe. Of course you eat tripe. It's, it's, it's what you do. It's hearty Lyonnais basic cooking is... It's, it's surprisingly simple, and it includes all of the animal, and there's pride in eating all of the animal, and there's pride in knowing that you're not going to waste the animal, and there's a pleasure in finding delicacies and flavors in the in the extreme bits of the animal. So it's yeah. going to be it's going to be intestines, it's going to be you know, lung, it's going to be the bladder, feet. Um, you're you're rarely going to get like a uh, a delicious pork chop. And going to a place where this is the currency is going to be an adventure. It's going to be an immersive adventure. And for somebody like you, who's a writer, you're, that's what you're looking for. You're going hardcore. This is what you're going for. Were you aware? Was that kind of the exciting adventurer writer in you, kind of looking for that that, that difficulty to that sort of jeopardy, the willy won't he, you know, to get through the the, the book? Did, did you and your publisher spot that? I knew it was going to be hard, but I knew it was going to be hard as an American who didn't speak French, going into a French kitchen and learning French techniques. And I remember looking at volumes of French skills and thinking, never, I'm never I don't even know what these terms mean. I, I can't imagine, it's difficult to project myself acquiring the knowledge where I, I would do these things without having to reflect on them. The whole prospect was just daunting as hell. What I hadn't really appreciated is that on top of that, going to Lyon, it's a very private, closed city with a lot of peculiar habits and a, a, a lot of grittiness, it's true. And it was, it was pretty hard. It, it was, you, you were going into, it didn't, you didn't, when we were there, we didn't feel like we were in Europe. We didn't. We, it wasn't familiar in the way that going to Paris would be familiar, or Rome, or Madrid. We felt really isolated. We felt a long way from New York, a long way from our friends. Our identities were stripped yeah. in, in, in many respects. Um, partly because we weren't supported by the immediate friends. But like, you know, New York, I was like, I'd been the fiction editor for The New Yorker. I was a staff writer of The New Yorker. You I was somebody. I, I, I was, you were somebody. I had a life there. Yeah. I was a somebody. And I went into Lyon, and I was nobody. And uh, people didn't care about The New Yorker, and they didn't, weren't interested in yeah. writing a book. It was, it was, it was, you know, they, they, were, they were kind of testing us. Uh, but we didn't know that at the time. And it was, it was a tough city to get into. It's a beautiful city. It must be said. It is gritty. Um, you got dog poop just about everywhere, uh, and, it, and the summertime, you know, is never admitted. But in the summertime, there's a heavy pollution that comes down the Rome Valley that settles on top of the rivers there, and, and it's 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 awful, and everybody gets sick. Um, but it is a city between two beautiful rivers. It's an ancient city, and it's got 
ancient architecture, and it's, it is it is gorgeous and dirty yeah. at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, most importantly, this was a family trip. Your saint of a wife, Jessica, was already a linguist. She'd spent some time in France, so she was able to fast-track you and the process of actually settling in France. Your boys, not so. Uh, they were two years old. But you did manage thanks to the organisational skills of your wife, largely, to actually get a place and go through all the enormous logistics of actually getting the visas and getting to France. Tell us how you managed to persuade Jessica that you were going to take on this enormous adventure. When I finally realised that um, Lyon was the place to go, and until that moment, my wife and I had been operating on an assumption that I do like a crash course with a French chef in America, and then we do a really intensive experience in the summer, probably in Paris, almost certainly in Paris, and then get back in time for the boys to start preschool, in effect. Um, and it's a big process in New York. We have to audition, and Jessica did all the all the work, and it's very hard to get in. It's it's a competitive business, so we got, we had because we had children, and uh, evidently they needed to be educated, and they needed to learn to read, and things like that. But what I realized, what I need to do is go to Lyon. I hatched this plan that we'd go there as a family for the summer, and then Jessica would take the boys back, and then I would I would work out through the autumn, and then I'll, I'll be home for Christmas. And she said. No, no, you're you're not, you're, you're not going. Uh, and it was a, it was a big moment. And I, and I remember said, "I'm not." And she said, "No, we are. We're moving to Lyon." Uh, wow. It, in many ways, it, it was like one of the great moments of our marriage because I was doing all this stuff to write books because I'm a writer and that was my my role, and I was carrying the family with the prospect that I would publish quickly enough to be able to support the family. Um, and at that moment, it was no longer about me, and my whole story changed. It became the story of moving as a family to a, a part of France that most people don't know, and it, it, it all changed. It was actually a, it was a great moment in our marriage. I bet. I mean, you know, I'm, I felt very envious actually i love immersive experience i always think that one day i'll go to france and i'll do something i have no idea what i would do because certainly i would never go and work in a french kitchen after reading dirt that's for sure um but you know it's it's a hell of a thing to take everybody with you but that is the story you do become a chef on the line you are dealing with all the stuff that chefs do which is working very very long hours now with they were three-year-olds by the time you actually started working, weren't they? It's true, true. They were two-year-olds when Jessica and I had the conversation. Yeah, three-year-old twins at home going through all the stuff about settling into schools. And you are really not there, are you? How did that go down? That was, that was a challenge. Um, I was definitely home too much when we first arrived because we ended up arriving just before Christmas in the winter and we couldn't find anything and we weren't sure if the boys were going to be in school and I couldn't find a job. And, but when I finally did get work, um, I left before the boys got up. I would sometimes come home during a break, during the pause and have a nap and then I'd leave and then I wouldn't get home until everyone had gone 
to bed sometimes just it's good very luck. hard i mean you mentioned one time when jessica had a migraine and she'd been throwing up all night and you've got toddlers at home and she was not able to be in charge of them and you went to work late and that was not allowed you know even under those circumstances it's a very punishing uh, regime and it goes very much into your second food moment which is really dealing with re- reality i mean you know the french kitchen D- daniel boulou actually said his assistant says the chef wants you to know that no one in america is doing what you're doing this is hardcore That's so true. he knew what you <laughs> were going true. through That's and true. you know you tell the story of um dan barber and his appalling treatment i mean he doesn't say which restaurant it was but uh the, the chef says oh what's that smell what's that smell ah the smell of a jew i mean mm. you know this is pretty nasty stuff and you did come up against this as did your colleagues in the kitchen uh tell us about florian for example florian was um a tall lanky gangly, nervous uh, 19-year-old who was part of the original team when the kitchen where I I ended up, La Mer Brésier, reopened. It's a very famous kitchen that closed and then reopened. So he was part of the reopening team and that was the team that I was joining. I don't even know how it happened, but one day Florian decided that I was, made him nervous and uh, that I was a problem. And, and I, I do wonder if he's getting some implicit instruction from the, the executive chef, but he, he turned on me. Um, uh, there's one busy night where he said, you know, you made me too nervous. I want you to stand over there on a step. This is the step to announce the party. It's like being made to stand in the corner. But uh, we came to a point of confrontation and I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. And I ended up standing on the step and just feeling like a complete idiot. Like uh, a child. And then, he, and, then he did, and then he started, you know, Later, as I got in the kitchen and I was doing more things, he would he would you know, he, he would give me, give me his work to do. It got worse and worse and worse. He would you know whenever he saw me go, Pah! he'd sort of stick out his foot and trip me. Uh, and till I mean, it was it bullying, reached, it was bullying, wasn't it? It was bullying, and it, it was really it was a very strange thing because he, he clearly had been bullied a lot. And he was being tolerated by the executive chef because he'd been fired from positions a couple times. And it was as if, like, he was being encouraged to be a member of the tough brigade. Yeah, and And, and this is what happens in kitchens. This is what happens in kitchens. You're a writer. You're not really a chef. You were kind of just there to kind of write about this as an experience. But you were... thrown into the deep end of of you know the heart of the the french kitchen culture you know we know this to be a thing poor old hortense one of your other colleagues one of the only well she was the only woman you worked with in 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 that particular kitchen i mean she had pans thrown at her that was a terrible moment and she had a terrible moment in the in the kitchen she's a she's a good soul the kitchen itself has changed. French kitchens have changed. And Merbrezier has definitely changed. But she had to suffer not sexual abuse, but, you know, sexual language. And one moment, uh, the guy she was working with, Sylvain, just flipped. I mean, we were, I was in the, in the main kitchen. And suddenly Hortense comes running into the kitchen from Garmanger. And then Sylvain comes marching afterwards, just, you know, big, big steps. And then he... He just sweeps all the pots off the um, off the flat top, making it such a crashing noise that I thought, 
the ceiling had fallen in, and then he picks up the pots and he throws them at Hortense's head. Not just one, but like one after the other. Bang, 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 bang. And poor Hortense is hiding, literally hiding uh, uh, behind a stove. And and to be fair, uh, Sylvain wasn't really aiming them at her head, but to be fair, Hortense <laughs> didn't really know that. She, he was not really aiming at her head. And the, and, the, and the executive chef, he's like, his arms crossed, he's watching the whole thing, and then it, and then it finishes. Somebody's asked to pick up the, 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 the pots off the floor, and we go back to work. There was another occasion where there was another, like a, a kid from the lycée, uh, and at one moment, actually, I think the kid was rude to me, because the rudeness becomes contagious, so the kid was kind of imitating Florian, and then the kid was rude to me, and, and suddenly Sylvain picked him up by his throat and slammed him against the wall and it picked, you know, it pulled back his giant old fist and said, oh, oh, I want to hit you in the face so bad. I don't like your face. I don't like your face. And all of us were gathered around. Nobody intervened. Again, the executive chef was there standing with his arms crossed. He'd been talking to the pastry chef and he just paused. And I thought, oh man, yeah. this, is, this is tough. It's- this, this, it's this, really this, tough. This a, some of it was, you know, you know and you're, you're, you're right. I, I went in as a writer, but I happened to go into a restaurant which was really worried about its finances at the time. And it was reopening. It had just got two mission stars. It was under a lot of pressure. There was the summer vacans coming up and they, they, they didn't want to have to pay, pay a, a new staff member during the vacans. And so I was definitely needed. And as a writer, yeah. that's where you want to be. You, you don't want to, you're, you're no longer a tourist. You're not like the journalist dipping in and out. And you're embedded. Like the, you're, you're there. Uh, and so for me, it's like perfect. Exactly. And I'm sure that plenty of people listening to this, you know, we look at a lot of chefs listening to cooking the books and, you know, some of the, it's, this is how it used to be in the old days. It's really, really not like that now. But I was interested when you talked about your third food moment, which is all about the Bouchon de Défi, um, where the f- women were front of house, where they were the owners, and the guys were, were the ones that they were bullying. But they weren't really like that, were they? they? Were they just putting on a pretense? Or was it was that real? Oh, you know, it was real to the extent that if their, if their chef let them down, they would they would give their chef shit. It was done with a kind of wonderful sense of irony and banter and performance. The, the Bouchon is such a beautiful Lyonnais institution. It's very unpretentious. It's where people gather to put all the rest of their life behind them and eat simple Lyonnais cooking and that you drink your wine in what's called a po, uh, spelled like pot P-O-T, but it's a, it's a, like it's 500 milliliters of whatever the local wine is. It's usually a a Beaujolais or a Macon. But in general, kitchens run by women are different from kitchens as they were traditionally run by men. You will get abuse. Uh, you'll be taken down. I remember I was with my family and we, were, we stopped at a, 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 at a restaurant on our way to, we were going to Italy, but we stopped at a, at a French restaurant on our way and it was run by a woman, and she got really furious at the at the young cooks working for her, for her, and she started abusing them. And we were sitting outside having a lemonade, and the boys started laughing because their their French is perfect, of course. And she was calling them all toads, and it's it's humiliating by to be called by your boss to, that you're an incompetent toad, but it's 
very different from the kind of sexual abuse that someone like Hortense in the Merbrezier kitchen had to suffer. It, it's, it's like a, a, a mother telling her son off rather than this real bullying, uh, real sort of use of power. But these women, Les Filles, they became your friends. And this moment, this third food moment, is actually where you finally feel that you've arrived in Lyon. And again, it's the transition from impressing with food. Uh, a lot of the Lyonnais food is about kind of, you know, a baptism of fire, getting through it to prove that you can do it uh, as, a, as a foreigner coming in. But that moment is all about the love of eating, the real understanding of what food does for friends. And it's a nourishing, warm, heartfelt evening that makes you feel that you've really landed. Tell us about that. It was quite a profound event. It it, it it originated with an exchange between uh, Isabel, one of the fee, there's Isabel and Laura. We, we were eating at Bouchon de Fee, and she said, Bill, you are going to uh, cook us dinner, and you're going to show us uh, how to make pasta. And I said, oh, I am. Am I? Yes. And uh, I said, okay. And she said, so let's think. Uh, we can do the weekends. We, this Saturday, no, no, this, this Saturday, we're busy. Next Saturday, we're coming for next Saturday. It was a kind of a flattering idea, but at the heart of it, really, and, and the numbers then grew and grew and grew, and it included husbands and partners and and uh, other chefs, and it became a, a little, you know, not not grand chefs, but like the real working chefs in Lyon. And at the heart of the invitation, which I didn't understand until later, is that it's a very, very important threshold to cross, which is the threshold of inviting people into your home to feed them. And we all do it. And it was one of the things I liked about Britain was that there's, you know, people have people over for dinner and they reciprocate and all that. And they do it much more than they do here in New York. But um, there it's kind of profound. And you make an effort. It doesn't have to be grand, but, you know, it, it involves some days of cooking and preparation and you, you host the table, the setting, the wine, um, several courses. And it is bonding in a way that I never, ever expected it to be. It's not like just having someone over for dinner. It's you've brought us into your life. You're sharing your life. You're sharing the intimacies of your surrounding. You're feeding us. And there's a, a, a Leonie assumption that magical things happen at the table that all problems are solved at the table, and that actually the table, the time you spend at the table is the best part of your day on any day. Um, and we did that, and uh, they, you know, they, they drank more than we've ever seen any Leonie drink, because they're generally pretty <laughs> modest drinkers. And I, I, it was late. It was like two, three, maybe it was three in the morning when I finally pushed, pushed them out the door and said, we have to go to bed. Um, and it was, and then, then they invited us over and that whenever we go to Lyon, we, they will always have us over. They will always cook for us. And if we, we don't go to Lyon one summer, which happened right before COVID, uh, they're cross. They're like, what happened? Uh, why weren't you in touch with us? And then when we're there, we have, uh, we have like these 
six-hour yeah. lunches. I mean, it feels it feels lovely. It's a lovely, lovely story of people really bonding and really getting together and really understanding what the place of food in Lyonnais society. But all the way through the the book, there are these tests. You know, there's the test of the the, the professional kitchen. There's the test of the friendship. There's the test of the the moving from foreigner to local there it feels like an endurance test some some of the time did you feel that i i felt there was an endurance test when i was in the kitchen um because that, that was actually just physically very testing just the hours were very testing i th- i think what happened in the end after we've been there about a year there was a there was a moment when we thought wow this is this is exactly where we want to be. And we felt like we were part of Lyon. The Lyonnais recognized that we got the city. They didn't regard us as tourists, foreigners, strangers, or Parisians, which would be the worst. Uh, And, you know, we we got very, we became very involved in in, in that place and we liked it. We we liked being there. Bob has a lot to do with you loving being in Lyon. And your next food moment is about Bob. Um, it's about this smelly, dirty, socialist, genius bread maker, you say, who believed that everyone should taste his bread, whose bread is ultimately the reason you call the book Dirt. Do you want to explain that? Bob's bread, Bob's bread was famous in Lyon. And uh, on Saturdays and Sundays, there would be really, really long lines. Um, his bread was a treat, and people would would leave with armfuls of his bread. It was what people did instead of brunch or something like that. The bread, it, it wasn't obviously amazing. It was more like you you were eating it, and you thought, oh, oh, well, this is actually pretty good. Um, or you'd finish eating it, and you and you'd realize, oh, I, I don't, it doesn't feel heavy on my stomach. Or there'd be certain aromas that arose out of it. Frederick in particular had a habit of, my son Frederick, of breaking the bread and sticking his nose right into the, what I think it's called the crumb, because it was like a fruity aromas arising out of what was actually good flour, which came from good wheat. Bob was the first place I found any kind of employment or a stage uh, when I was having a hard time getting into a restaurant, and he took me on, and I was taken on on the assumption that I would learn what made Bob's bread so good. And he does all the technical stuff and he does, you know, slow, long risings and he doesn't rush anything and everything takes, you know, it's sort of 18 hours to complete. And, but, but what made his bread good was that he got uh, good, small farmed flour with a place that had volcanic soil even so that it had deep flavors uh, that produced a great iron wheat. rich as well wasn't yeah, it it was iron great, rich volcanic yeah soil which makes a huge difference to the taste that and the fact that he 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 basically is milled to order so he'd get it every couple weeks the, the moment it's milled it's going to starch and y- you you want to get it as fresh as you can but the heart of it was it you know, I, I took a, a ride once through what's called the Breadbasket of France, which is that area up between uh, the Loire and, and and Paris. It's it's big, massive acres and acres and acres and acres and acres of mass-produced wheat. 
from the, the mass-produced flour, which is probably at the heart of the French baguette and everything else that they eat in France. And then you, you, you but Bob's is coming from like a, 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 place, a place on a sort of rocky side of the mountain. And the, the instead of a label, uh, he had, or anything about the farmer, he had, he had the picture of the farmer's goat. And that was in his window. And, and it was like, that said it all. This is a place where the farmer has goats and it's a small farm. It's still pretty big. It's real. I mean, but it's yeah, still it's pretty real. small. But but tell us about the dirt. I mean, this is the name of the book. Um, it, it, when you do talk about that wheat from the old volcanic, iron-rich soil, you're talking about stuff that hasn't been. Well, it's it's pesticide free. It's not organic because it's just never had pesticides. It's real. It's the way things were. It's as old as it comes. Um, but why why dirt? Um, one of the things I was trying to do in in the, my time in France was was learn the the true taste of French ingredients and French food, you know the, the goût, um, and that was a thing you could only experience there, and it, I wanted it to become my measure of of how to judge. French preparations and other foods as a result. And the more I pursued that, the more interesting and local it, it got. You know, there's, there's, a, you know, there's a whole thing about the French and their cheese. You know, the, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the cliche about the French is they always have those cheese. But I think the figure is something like 2,500 unique cheese preparations are recognized by the European Union, which is to say these are cheeses which come from one place and one place only and have been made in a traditional way for a very long time so that they have they are from that place and, and no other and I think that's a wonderful and, and what it is is that it's here's a practice that goes back to whoa you know centuries and centuries and these cheeses what they're really doing is they're saying this is what milk tastes like when it comes from our particular patch of earth, our particular climate, our particular cows, the cows we've learned to raise in this particular place, and the practices of making cheese from it that have been passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. Terroir. It's the story. I went and spent some time with um, a cheesemaker in the Beaufortin in the mountains in the Alps, where in the summertime, the animals... Uh, in a big pilgrimage to the to the to the high Alps, we'll eat the summer grasses that grow as winter recedes, and you get the full force of the sun, because that grass has an intensity and a flavor that goes into a milk that has a uniqueness that you can't get anywhere else that produces a cheese, which is one of my favorite cheeses in the world, which is the uh, the the Beaufortin, the, te, the summer Beaufort cheese. And that's not so different from what what Bob does. Bob's, you know, finding a wheat that's a living plant that has a flower that's made from it with a freshness that retains its 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 life. That that is expressed in the bread, just way this cheese is. And the, the cheese is interesting in another respect. There's something I learned later, which is that. You think, well, this is a peasant practice to bring the animals up to the top of the mountains, and it goes back to the first cultivation. But it, when I was in Canada, in, in the mountains in Canada, and I, I, 
uh, I heard the, the people that are talking about how as the spring comes, uh, all the animals come down into the village. But then as you go into the summer, all the animals of their own go up to the top of the mountains. And in fact, this pilgrimage for the best grass doesn't come from peasants. It comes from the animals. And the moment you realize that, somehow you're involved in a pro- the flavor. The story of a particular flavor is involved in a, in a process that's as old as, as the earth, as old as life. And what I liked about the French, and the French are lunatics, but what I liked about them is that they, they, they prized these special spaces, this dirt that would produce these unique flavors that you can't get anywhere else, not only in the world, but you can't get anywhere else in another part of France. It's a paradox in that the dirt is the cleanest of the soil. It doesn't have any pesticides. It only has the story of the people who farm it and the animals who tread the land. And it is anti-industrial. It's old school. It's It kind of is a a metaphor for how we lost our way. And your final food moment is really about why. It's about food purity, isn't it? And that's what you found. This was the result of your mission. True. Um, Bob Bob dies. uh, And our little uh, Cartier goes into deep mourning. He dies unexpectedly and quite tragically. And I was haunted by the idea that I never went to the farm that grew the wheat that made Bob's flour. After we left Lyon, I went back because there were some, a couple of things that I still wanted to do. I wanted to go out with this fisherman and learn his thing. And, and I stayed at a restaurant with rooms. There was nobody there. And I was having breakfast with this guy. He was... He was wonderfully belligerent and very suspicious, even more suspicious of me than the Lyonnais had ever been. He was Savoir, and he resents the Lyonnais. And at one point he said, you, 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 you're, you're French, it's, 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 it's very Lyonnais. And I thought, oh, that's very flattering I mean, for me for you know, saying my French is so advanced that it actually, you can tell where it comes from. I said, thank you. And then he said, I hate the Lyonnais. Um, <laughs> But I was, as I was there, I was the only one there. I was, got up early because I was going to go see the fisherman. And his arms are crossed. All French chefs seem to cross their arms. Leaning against the door, watching me eat. Uh, he wasn't even really having conversations, just watching me eat so that he could tell me how good each ingredient was. And then I ate his bread and I thought, oh, wow, this is pretty good. And then uh, we carried on talking. And then he said how Americans, when they come here, they don't, they don't respect his bread because it's been sliced. And I have to admit, uh, I don't really like sliced bread myself. Um, and then the next morning, I, I came back again, and I, I, I had another meal. And he stood there with his arms crossed looking at me. And, and I thought, wow, this bread really is good. And In fact, this bread, this bread reminds me of Bob's bread. And I start asking him about where he gets his flour. And, and he got really defensive and arrogant and said, no, it's, it's all local. Everything's local. It's milk. It's local. And that, it's a, what, it's milled local? Yes, it's milled local. I'm over there. It's a, really? There's a mill near here? And, and I found it, and I went there, and I met the owner, and, and he, he turns out to be a miller who specializes in small farms. And it was like, ah, it, this explains, Bob. It's true. And I, I, I picked up a loaf when I went back, flying back to New York. I picked it up in the morning, fed it to my, the bread to my children when I got home, and 
and they got all excited and 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 Frederick opened opened the bread up and stuck his nose in it and he said, Oh, it's like Bob's and uh we finished the loaf and I came back with a five kilo bag or a ten kilo bag and I made I made his bread with his wheat until I ran out of flour and then I haven't really made bread since. Oh. It's it's a it's a wonderful story. It's it it feels like you found your way to the heart of Leon through Bob and after his death, which is absolutely left me in tears. Um, you find then where it all comes from. How wonderful legacy of Bob. So what next? I've been watching your YouTube's with the boys who are now what? They are fifteen. And they'll be 16 in September. Oh, wow. Okay, so they are director and cameraman. It's Buford and Sons on YouTube, and it is basically adventures in French cooking. You're going back through some of the the, the, the dishes that you were making there, and your boys are fantastically condescending to you about how to do it properly, because they are <laughs> That's true. so That's immersed true. in their Frenchness. Uh, you never quite became as French as they, they did, clearly. Uh, is that fun? It's very fun. And they do abuse me roundly and without any inhibition. These are videos of French food preparations. And I write a New Yorker piece that goes with them. And it's on the New Yorker site. It's on the New Yorker site, yeah. The next one it's gonna, we're going to do is on French fries. Um, <laughs> it, it, yeah, the, the, the last one we did was uh, au uh which is uh, eggs poached in red wine. Um, so, I mean, invariably, I'm going to use a French word because we're making French food preparations. And I know whenever I use a French word, they're going to go... <laughs> <laughs> it's great fun they settled obviously uh they cried the, the when they came back from their first day um at back in, in new york because of the food in the canteen um how heartbroken were you to know that you had taken them the very essence of their frenchness away from them uh we were all heartbroken to come back it's good we came back probably um I, partly because I I couldn't write a book about our being in Lyon. I discovered while I was in Lyon because every day I opened the door, there was more things I wanted to know, and so I'm I'm over researched. And it's good because the boys are American and they're grateful to be American, and they came here and they the, the timing worked out pretty well in all all respects. We went when they were three. And they could learn the language without too much, um, too many difficulties or too many problems. And then they came back at a point where they spoke in the language just long enough where they they could retain the language, uh, but where they could then learn to write and speak in English. But they're happy. They're 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 happy here, and they're but they have this French side, and they have a respect for dinner. Have they still retained that essence of what food means? They come to the table in the confidence that food has been made for them and has been prepared for them and that everybody will assess it and everybody will pay attention to it and that there is an ancillary benefit but an essential feature which is that while we're all gathered over this food um, things happen and they bring stories. They save stories. Things will happen during the day. Say, so, oh, no, I'm going to tell you at dinner. Um, and as a result, the dinner table is a very animating, happy place. COVID has probably 
help this because, you know, basically none of us has had a social life for 15 months. And we'd already had the dinner tradition. And it's become a very tender place where we enjoy being together. Thanks for listening. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my news. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week when we're off to Sicily with chef and food writer Ben Tish. 